My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. May the Lord be in my heart and on my lips, that I may worthily and fitly proclaim the gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we heard the reading from John chapter 6 this morning, and as you know, we're going to be continuing through John chapter 6 throughout the month uh, of August. Dealing with the theme, the sermon series is called The Bread uh, of Life, and today we're going to talk about the food that endures. The food that endures. Because Jesus says at the end of the reading, whoever comes to me will not hunger, whoever comes to me will never thirst. When I was living in South Africa, I was introduced to some truly heavenly food. And if my brother-in-law is listening to this, he's probably jumping up and down right now screaming amen because he's South African, uh, living now in America. But I was introduced to this heavenly food called biltong. All right, now biltong is kind of like beef jerky, only it tastes good. And, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I, had, I had to go there. Um, the way that you would prepare it, like the, the settlers in, in southern Africa, right, there's parts of it that are, you know, very dry and hot. And so they needed their food to last, right? And so they wanted their meat to last. So what they did was is they, they cut up the meat and they heavily seasoned it and salted it. And then they let it dry out and cure in the sun, creating biltong, right? So then they could take a bunch of it with them on a trip, right? And so they could eat it and it would last for a long time because of the sun had cured it. That's actually really clever. It's a really clever way of preserving your food, and they were able to bring a lot of it with them wherever they were going, and now it's a really huge part of, of South African culture. But no matter how good it was, no matter how dried out it was, no matter how long it lasted, there would get a point, there, a point would come where the food was no longer able to be eaten. I remember a couple of years ago, there was this meme floating around on social media where uh, somebody took a cheeseburger from McDonald's, and they're like, look, and they, and they just left it alone for like years and years, and then they sent out the meme saying, see, look at what GMO does to our food. McDonald's burgers don't even rot. Don't eat there. And I mean, that was kind of true and not true. It had nothing to do with GMOs or manipulation or anything like that. It was just the conditions were okay for that burger to not rot. But McDonald's food actually, actually does rot, like all food does, and fairly quickly. But how good would it be, right, if we could have food that lasts longer than McDonald's, that lasts longer than Biltong, food that never goes bad? Food that never goes bad. And food that's, that's so nutritionally advanced that you live forever after you eat it. The food that endures. So, in today's text, it picks up immediately after in John 6, where we ended last week, right? We talked about the feeding of the 5,000. We talked about Jesus walking on the water. We saw that Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses, that Jesus is greater even than Elisha. Jesus then revealed himself in what's called a theophany, as God, by walking on the water. We talked about how the book of Job says that Yahweh, God, is the one who walks or treads upon the ways of the sea, and Jesus gets to the boat, and he says, hey, I'm I am, right? The disciples are starting to put all these things together, all right? And so now, 
The next day, the crowd is like, where's Jesus? The boats are gone. We didn't see him leave. We saw the disciples leave, but where's Jesus? So they all pile in their boats, and they go look for Jesus. Where is he at? He's ghosted us, right? He's long gone. So they go, and they find him on the other side of the sea, right? So think about it, right? You have this massive group of people coming from different places still. They've been searching for him probably all day, right? Because it takes a while to get across the sea. And they finally find him. Now keep in mind, the last time they saw him, the day before, what did he do for them? He gave them some delicious food. He fed them. And so they run into him on the other side, and they're like, hey, teacher, when did you get here? You weren't in the last place we saw you, and he didn't leave a note, didn't text us or send us a messenger, so what does Jesus respond with? Truly I say to you, you're looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you haven't been looking for me all day because you saw a really cool miracle, which you did. You were looking for me because I gave you food when you were hungry. In other words, you're looking for me because you want me to meet your immediate needs. You're not here because you are interested in anything I have to say. You're not interested in seeing a sign. You want me to feed you again. You want me to feed you again. And the feeding of the 5,000 is pointing to a spiritual reality even greater than what they understood it to mean. But they didn't pick up on it. They follow Jesus because of what they think he can do for them, an attitude that remains to this day. St. Augustine wrote this in, his, in his, um, one of his sermons on the Gospel of John, chapter 6. He said, How many there are who do not look for Jesus except when they want him to do them a temporal favor. Someone has a business, he seeks the intervention of the clergy. Another wants a plea made to someone with whom he has little influence. One wants this, another wants that. The church is filled every day with such people. Rarely does anyone seek Jesus for the sake of Jesus. When I read that, I'm like, did he write that last week? Because that's, that's like really prescient. Like that's still that's still really profound and it still speaks to our immediate context. And I'm not saying it's wrong, right, to ask Jesus for things, to, to, to ask God to do things for us. It's okay. We, we just did it. We even ended it off with the prayer of St. John Chrysostom. You know, grant these requests as may be what? Best for us. Granting us in this world knowledge of your truth and in the age to come, life everlasting. That acknowledgement, right, that sometimes we think we're asking for something that God should give us, but it might not be best for us. So maybe we should trust that he knows what he's doing. And if we don't get what we ask for, maybe that's okay. I'm not saying that we can't ask for things, but Jesus' point here that St. Augustine's picking up on is using Jesus to get what we want, to do us a favor. 
And in our own day and time, brothers and sisters, this, this continues, this attitude continues, and it is everywhere in Christianity, everywhere. Jesus becomes a means to an end. Jesus becomes a piece of technology. Jesus becomes a magic incantation that we utter to get what we want. If I just say the right words in the right way, in the right pattern, and then I add at the end, in Jesus' name, amen, God is obligated to do this for me. And in the reading this morning, we heard from Exodus, that same attitude appears. The children of Israel complain. They complain because they had meat and they had bread in Egypt. Egypt. They're basically saying it was better for us to be in slavery. That's insane. We had bread and meat when we were slaves, and now we're out here in the wilderness. Do you forget what God has done for you, children of Israel? Yeah, they did. That's why they all die in the wilderness, right? The children of Israel, St. Paul says, there's these stories, he says, are an example for us so we don't make those same mistakes. That's a point he makes throughout his epistles, that they are an example for us. They saw what they had when they were enslaved as being better than what God had brought them out of or what God was bringing them to. And we do that too sometimes, brothers and sisters. We were enslaved to sin. And we, are, we were, I should say, enslaved to death. And the exodus is a picture of what salvation is. It's the paradigm by which we use to understand what God has done for us in Christ. That Egypt is sin and Egypt is death and Egypt is Satan. And how Christ liberated the children of Israel from all of that. We are liberated from sin and death just as they were liberated from Egypt and slavery and toil and all of that stuff. Jesus has saved us from sin and death. And for us, that would be like going backwards and saying, thank you, Jesus, for saving me from sin. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me from death. But you know what? I'm going to go back there and put myself back under the power of sin, back under the power of death, back under the things you died to save me from because I had it a little bit better then. Because when I wasn't following you, it was a little bit easier because nobody made fun of me because I believed in you. Or the things that I used to do when I was subject to sin and death, they felt better than now, and I got on board. Jesus is seen by these people, and like many of us, as a means to an end, as the fulfillment of our earthly desires. And this is reflected in popular preaching, too. Have a good attitude. Don't ever say a negative word, and God will bless you. And I always say, have you read the Psalms? Probably not. The Psalms are full of people saying negative things. Stay positive. So it is good to stay positive, but we still have to balance out the positive right, with the negative. The negative helps us to positive in perspective. 
And we tell people, just come to Jesus and everything will be better in your life. And we attach materialism to what is supposed to be eternal. And we neglect the spiritual reality. And we need to seek Jesus not because he can get us a shiny new car or we should seek Jesus because he'll give us enough money to fix the bell tower. We should seek Jesus because it's only in him that we have life. Let's talk about prove it. Prove it. So... Well, actually, let's talk a little bit about Jesus being the Son of Man. So Jesus talks about being the Son of Man. And a commentator named Bruce, he notes that he might be avoiding using the title Messiah because we have to remember what happened to him with the crowd the last time. They tried to make him king by force, and so he left them and went up on the mountain. This title, Son of Man, is an important one that we see clearly in Daniel 7, 13 to 14. And if you're attending our Mark Bible study, you would have heard this scripture a couple of weeks ago as we discussed similar themes. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that's God, and was presented before him, and to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So in this passage from Daniel talking about the Son of Man, we see a human figure ascending to the throne of God who is then given dominion over all things. This is the Son of Man. And Jesus, by calling himself the Son of Man, is clearly placing himself in this role. And they would have immediately picked up on this. He also says that God has sealed him. And we know that this happens in his baptism, right? In the Jordan River, when the Holy Spirit descends upon him. This is God's imprimatur upon him. It's his seal upon him to show that he is the anointed one. That he has been sent from the Father. That he has a divine commission and a divine mandate and an to do what God has sent them to do. And this is what the signs that he does, the miracles, this is what they testify to. And St. Paul will pick up on this theme of sealing uh, that the Holy Spirit does in his epistles when he tells his readers that you have been sealed by the Spirit in the same way. And this is God's, I'm going to use air quotes here, guarantee of the coming fulfillment of the salvation gift that they have received. Jesus tells them, don't work for food. Work for the food that endures to eternal life, which leads them to ask, well, how? So Jesus says, here's the work of God. This is how you do it. Believe in the one he has sent. In other words, me. Believe in me. Commentators named Martin and Wright, they say, God's work is the act that the Father performs in believers' hearts, which enables faith in Jesus. It also applies to our work of yielding to God's action in us. Our work is to yield to the Father's work within us and so believe in his Son and receive him as the source of our eternal life. Let's talk a little bit about prove it now. So the people hear this, and they know what he's talking about now. Okay, you're the Son of Man from the book of Daniel. And you're going to give us a food that endures to eternal life? Prove it. Do a sign. Dance for us. Right? That was a joke. Dance for us. If you do a sign, we'll believe you. 
They probably wouldn't have, though, even if he had done a sign. Because he just did a sign. They just saw it the day before. He just took five barley loaves and he fed 5,000 men with it. And we don't even know how many women and children. It could have been 10,000 people. We don't know. They just numbered the men back then. Because, sorry, ladies, that's just kind of how they did it. But he fed thousands with five cakes. And then they ask for a sign? Spiritually blind. You gave us bread, Jesus, and, you've, and some fish in the wilderness, and that's really cool and all. Thank you for that. Yeah, but you, you remember Moses? He didn't give us barley cakes. And remember, Jesus, those barley cakes that you multiplied for us, they were already there. Somebody gave those to you. And so you just broke them and gave them to us. And that's great. But Moses, he gave us bread that fell out of the sky, bread baked in God's own heavenly kitchen's ovens, right? And that just, that fell from heaven. Can you top that? Because in their mind, Moses is the man, right? There is no one higher for them, no prophet greater than them, no figure more revered than Moses. And Jesus is setting himself up here as the one greater than Moses because his bread is eternal. And Jesus fires right back at them and he says, Moses didn't give you the manna, God gave you the manna. It wasn't from Moses, it was from God. And the bread I'm going to give you is the true bread from heaven. Now, he's not saying that manna that came through the, from God through Moses, he's not saying that that was like false bread or that the manna wasn't somehow not from heaven or some kind of divine trickery. No, what he means is the manna was a type. It is foreshadowing something greater that is to come. And just as Jesus is greater than Moses, the bread that comes from Jesus is also greater and that it will never corrupt or wither away or die. And those who eat it will live forever, eternal life. And the crowd, they want this bread. They're like, give it to me, please, right now. <laughs> and then Jesus drops this bomb. I'm the bread. Whoever comes to me will not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. St. Theophylact says, He is the bread not of the ordinary everyday life to which we are accustomed, but another kind, one strange and marvelous, not cut short by death. Let's talk about believing. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst, Jesus says. And then he talked earlier about the work of God is to believe in the one that God has sent. So, in John 10, Jesus, uh, John writes, Jesus has come to bring life and to bring life in abundance. And so it's only in Christ that we can become partakers of true, lasting, and eternal life. And, and like the people of Israel, we draw near to God many times only when we're in trouble or when we want something instead of drawing near to God just to draw near and to share in the divine life offered to us as a gift. I remember many, many years ago, now decades now at least, you know, I, I grew up 
in a particular tradition of Christianity that kind of demonstrated some of the excesses of the things I've been sharing about this morning, about Jesus giving us things that we want. And I remember hearing for the first time in that paradigm, my prayer life up at that point had consisted of just me asking for things. And I remember being challenged by one of my teachers, and they were like, have you ever just tried to pray and not ask God to give you anything? Well, no, because I thought that's how we were supposed to pray. And the teacher was like, why don't you just go pray and spend time in God's presence just for the sake of doing it? I was like, you can do that? You can, as it turns out. And sometimes we get so wrapped up in asking God for things and to do this and the, and the worries and the concerns of this life that weigh heavily upon us, and we should and we do lift those up to the Lord in prayer. But when was the last time that we just were silent before the Lord or even spent time praying to the Lord, not asking him to give us anything, instead of maybe asking him, please help me to learn to be thankful for what you've given me. What are you trying to say to me at this time? I've been praying for you to take me out of this situation or to do this for me, and that prayer hasn't been answered. Lord, what are you trying to teach me? What am I missing? Maybe I just need to sit still in your presence. As we get into the rest of the chapter of John chapter 6, we're going to focus more on, on partaking of the bread of life. But today we're going to talk about another way of partaking of the heavenly bread. St. Augustine put it, believe and you have eaten. Right? And Jesus says in verse 29, believe in he whom God has sent. So belief plays itself out, brothers and sisters, in two ways. First, there's the apprehension of Jesus Christ in the soul. We hear the gospel, gospel proclaimed. It moves us to ask, what shall I do to be saved? And it leads us to confess Jesus Christ and to be received into his church through the waters of baptism. And his, the confession of Christ as Lord. It's Romans 10, 9, and 10. The apprehension is a gift of God, right? Jesus says this here in John's gospel, where God acts in our heart and he draws us to Christ and it's here where we are then led to affirm Christ or to reject Christ. But belief isn't just the public act of confession. It's not just the, the mental apprehension of Jesus or the apprehension of Jesus in the soul. Belief is also our ongoing belief, our ongoing faithfulness that Jesus is the Son of Man and that Jesus is the Son of God and that in him we have life. Belief is a lifelong, ongoing process that is continually refreshed through worship, through prayer, through our living lives of holiness and our feasting on Christ. Not only through that belief, but by eating at his table feasting upon his very body and blood given for us. And so to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be all glory together with the Father 
who is from everlasting and is all holy, good, and life-giving spirit. And may he ignite in us and in our hearts the desire to seek his face, not so we can get things from him, but that we can just sit and learn to love him more. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. If you have a few minutes, I'd like to ask you to go to gofundme.com slash zionstonechurchrepairfund. Our bell tower is in need of some major renovation and repairs, and we could use whatever help you're able to give to us. If you'd like to find out more about us, check us out on our Facebook page, Zion Stone UCC, or on our website, zionstoneucc.com. Thanks again for listening. I pray that these sermons will continue to strengthen you in your walk with Jesus Christ. And may the blessings of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you.